Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. I spent 30 years in the police and I did a lot of interesting jobs during that time at many ranks. When I left the police, I wrote a book all about my experiences, the title of which, unsurprisingly, is Tango Juliet Foxtrot. But you'll need to read the book to understand what TJF stands for. This podcast is all about British policing, the good, the bad and the ugly. If you're interested in what policing's really like, this is definitely the podcast for you. In it, I interview lots of people who've done some amazing things in policing. And I also give you my thoughts on what's been going on in the news to help you understand how it all works or doesn't work sometimes. Caution is advised as some of the topics can be distressing and there's some swearing from time to time. So, here we go. Hello everybody, welcome back to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast, episode 55. Uh, this week I'm going to have a chat with a really great guy, John Adams. Now John, it's kind of a weird one this, um, really in a nice way. Um, I get lots of, as I've said before, I get lots of lovely messages and emails and stuff via Facebook and various channels via the website etc, people giving me uh so far, um, 100% positive uh, feedback, and uh, and John was one of those uh, people who he's out in Western Australia, uh, previously in the Metropolitan Police in London, and uh, yeah, we exchanged a few messages, and on and I was thought I'm going to get this bloke on because he sounds like a good good bloke, and um, he's I'd love to hear all about his experiences of policing in Australia and doing a bit of a compare with, uh, you know, his experiences in London. So, uh, so yeah, I kind of took a little bit of a punt there because I think, oh, I don't know this bloke from Adam, never spoken to him, don't know anything about him, could be a complete clown. Uh, but as it was, what a top bloke, what a great guy. And I really, really enjoyed chatting to him. So we'll come on to that in a moment. Uh, before we do that, just touch on a story from the last uh, week. Uh, it's been rumbling on a little bit of time, but it's sort of reached a bit of a conclusion. So this is the officer, the female officer up in Cleveland, who was disciplined for urinating whilst drunk in a Urban Outfitters store, having consumed rather a lot of alcohol. Um, in York, obviously her and a friend, I believe, went off on the piss as, uh, you know, I'm not judging her. Well, we've all done it. Um, but what I haven't done is taken a piss in a changing room of a shop, which is pretty disgusting when you think about it, uh, drunk or not. So anyway, uh, it would appear that this then went, this got investigated. Um, it was a finding of guilt. Uh, it turned out that she had lied about it, uh, which obviously exacerbated matters somewhat. And um, long and short of it is that after a disciplinary hearing, she's kept a job, which I'm really struggling with, I'll be honest. Um, so you've got someone there who has got themselves so pissed 
as a serving police officer that have gone into a shop and they've and they've urinated in the changing rooms and then lied about it afterwards. So you've got you got several things there, haven't you? Without wanting to sound like a you know yeah, this, the wisdom of Solomon here, but you, you've got someone there who who has obviously behaved in a way that is not would not be acceptable as a police officer, basically drunk and disorderly, and um, arguably causing criminal damage there through the actions, and and then has lied about it. So there's a dishonesty element to it as well, but she still kept her job, and the thing that I'm doubly struggling with is that I believe that when this happened she was a probationer so it would have been ever so easy to get rid of her. The fact that it's a female officer is neither here nor there. If it's a, if it's been a bloke who'd done this it would, I would be saying exactly the same by the way so I'm not treating this differently just because it's a female officer. Um, yeah I just I just think the police service has had such a lot of bad press recently that when you hear something like this you just think oh come on you know, do you want this person in the organisation? I'd suggest, yes, she's probably made a really stupid mistake whilst drunk, but what does that say about her judgment? Um, and also from an evidential point of view, that means that every time she goes to court in the future, that matter will be brought up and, and played back to her in court, saying, you are a dishonest person. It has been proven that you are a dishonest person. Um, was there a finding of guilt for dishonesty against you? Yes, there was. So uh, I wouldn't want her anywhere near any prosecution that I was responsible for that was a, you know, I wouldn't want her as a key witness in any of my jobs, put it that way. So there you go. Another weird and wonderful day in the life of the UK police. And just one other thing, uh, which was very... Disturbing actually this week. Um, I got a message from uh, Fiona, who was one of my previous podcast guests uh, the other day. Fiona and I served together in uh, Fiona Israel, her, her, her new married name is. Um, she was Fiona Shaw whenever I, whenever I first worked with her and knew her as a very good friend as well. As I say, I interviewed her on a previous episode of the podcast. She contacted me during the week and uh, said, oh, have you seen this thing on the news about Tony Smith? And I was like, no idea, who are you talking about? Um, and then I looked at the press reports and suddenly it all sort of fell into place. So you may have seen the headlines in the last week about the conviction of a former Metropolitan Police Officer, Anthony Smith, uh, 56 years old, and he was uh, convicted of 13 charges of rape and serious sexual assaults against three victims over a long period of time. Uh, the victims, I believe, were very young teenagers at the time. And he had another previous, apparently he got kicked out of the job back in 2004 after he was convicted of gross indecency with a child. So he's clearly a very prolific sex offender. But the th whilst that is shocking, um, what, what I find obviously uh, particularly shocking was the fact that I remembered that I used to work with him. Um, when I first joined the police, 
uh, he joined at the same time as me and uh, he got posted to the same police station as me in South London and we did our what was called street duties together so we we actually worked together quite closely uh, for um yeah well on and off probably 12 or 18 months but particularly closely when we were doing our street duties training and I actually went to his house once which made me feel very weird now thinking back on it um and uh yeah really shocking um I don't know if anybody's listening to this who has you know discovered that they knew someone who then turned out to be a rapist uh it's a kind of weird feeling really because you know obviously at the time I wouldn't have uh suspected him of being involved in that type of activity but then for a start we were probably very young we were only 23 so I hadn't I didn't have the benefit of you know 30 years policing experience um and you know, looking at his history, he really ticks an awful lot of the boxes of someone who uh, would be a a concern, a worry in terms of as a as a risk to children. Um, in that, he was a work prior to joining the police. He was working as a lifeguard at a swimming pool, um, which you know, with the benefit of hindsight now, you can see how someone who's got a sexual interest in children uh, that is absolute that's like putting the uh, wolf amongst the the sheep isn't it really um and then joining the police which again is a an organization that for the wrong type of person you can gain access to vulnerable people uh, in order to exploit them sexually which is exactly what it would appear that he was doing and um, yeah, it's a really, really horrible feeling actually. Um, so my memories of him, uh, yeah, he was actually a, a very charming guy when I knew him. Um, we were both probably the same. Well, yeah, we are the same age because he's 56 now, I'm 56. So yeah, we're the same age. So at the time when I knew him, I was 23. Um, and I always sort of saw him as being a lot Although we were the same age, he was a lot more streetwise than me. Well, mind you, that wouldn't have been hard, to be fair. Um, and, yeah, he was a very sort of charming guy, um, very smooth, you know. And, yeah, and it's interesting, when I did my training with Dr. Joe Sullivan, which you can listen to in previous episodes, I talk about the mindset of the child sex offender. And Joe Sullivan, who's one of the world's leading authorities on child sex offenders, uh, talked about different typologies of offender. So um, I'm going to—I'm probably going to absolutely murder this, um, but I'm just from memory. Uh, there's various. There's, there was one which was like the poor me. So you know, he was—he's the guy who would come into the police interview, um, you know, on crutches. Um, and he would be full of, he'd like give you a whole long winded explanations of all his medical issues and he'd be wincing and sort of asking to go to the toilet because he didn't feel well and it would just be like a massive pathetic kind of poor me and then another typology would be um, 
Um, the fogger, he called him the fogger, someone who just tries to tie you up on all sorts of bullshit, you know, uh, in interviews. They just try and drag you away from the subject that you're interested in and just talk complete shit um, and, and ideally try and get you really confused and sort of bamboozled. And he used to he used to talk about them as the foggers. And one of the other typologies that he talked about was the, was the cool guy. You know, hey, I'm the cool guy. Everybody loves me. And, you know, I'm your friend and I want to help you. And, you know, they were kind of a bit sort of narcissistic in terms of, you know, well, I would definitely put Tony into that category, the cool guy, you know. And um, this sounds really half-baked, doesn't it? But he's been convicted now. So, um, yeah, really weird, weird feeling, weird feeling. And uh, 24 years in prison, he got 24 years. That's a big old sentence, isn't it? So, yeah, well, thoroughly, thoroughly deserved. And I, you know, I, I'm pleased that someone who's as dangerous to young people has been taken off the streets and well done to the investigative team who put them behind bars because, uh, yeah, hope he stays there for all 24 of them. Right, let's get into the interview with John. Morning, John. How are you? Morning. Oh, good afternoon here. <laughs> yeah, it is. You got to switch your camera on? Oh, I'm sorry. God, I listen to this all the time and I hear people say they don't get your technology right. And I've done that straight away. <laughs> That's all right. That's um it always uh it always uh it always helps whenever um you can actually say hey, there he is. There you go. How are you doing? I'm good, mate. I'm good, thank you. Excellent. Look, I'm good. You're very you? I can see your furry friend behind you there. Yeah, my dogs are in, so they might cause an issue. And my, uh, my daughter's just got home from school, so. That's um, all right. That's all right. Got, do got dogs myself. I've taken myself off to the garden office because it's a bit quieter out here. Kids, oh. at, kids at home, summer holidays and uh, and all of that. So, um, yeah, we've got builders in the house. We've got kids. We've got dogs. My wife works from home. So trying to find somewhere peaceful to do this can be a bit challenging sometimes and I've I've had to use a variety of different venues including my daughter's bedroom um which was a, which was a bit weird been surrounded by lots of pink stuff you know yeah. but, uh, <laughs> so uh so let me see you're in western australia so what time is it there locally nine o'clock so nine o'clock here four, yeah four o'clock so seven hours at the moment so it's um mm. it's a bit of a challenge to keep track because we don't have um some time here so. Yeah, what you say? What is basically the same temperature all year round? Is it? Well, it's it's a little bit chilly at the moment. I say that. I think it's been about twenty degrees today. So really, um, it's dropping at night. And I had a first yesterday. In fact, I got up for work yesterday morning, and the alarm went off in my car. And I thought I, I didn't even know what it was until a sort of frost, little frost light came up. Bloody hell! It was three degrees. So that's Shit. that's the first. So let me just um, recap how we come to be speaking to each other, just to set the scene. Um, so um, you very kindly contacted me via LinkedIn, wasn't it, um, to give me some yeah. nice feedback about uh, the book. I can't remember, was it the book or the podcast? I can't remember. Um, and uh, and then you told me a little bit about your career, what you'd been doing, uh, the fact you'd been in the Met, you know, you're in Australia, and... Uh, and you've been in the RAF police as well. I thought, oh, 
this is 100% a podcast guest here. So, uh, so yeah, so, uh, <laughs> so you, and then you had to go and uh, grovel, grovel to your line management, didn't you? <laughs> to get Grovel's maybe a little bit hard. <laughs> <laughs> to get uh, permission to, to come on the podcast, but uh, glad and thankfully they, they said yes. So, so yeah, so welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on. Um, Thank you. Thanks, so there's, there's a few things that I want to kind of try and get out of this today um i'm fascinated with uh, the transition between being in british policing and australian policing mm. um uh obviously i'm interested as well in terms of your background when you were in the uk the sort of stuff you were doing and then what you've been doing in australia professionally as well as just some of the be interesting to do a bit of a compare around um, where policing is in Australia at the moment compared to the UK because as you know because uh, I wrote a book about it uh, it's all in a bit of a mess isn't it in the UK so it'd be interesting to kind of get your take on that and get your take on where you think policing is in Australia without you know saying stuff that's going to lose your job. <laughs> <laughs> <Let's hope. laughs> that's the uh, that's the challenge so uh, yeah. so first of all John um do you want to just explain um, when you joined? So let's go right back, actually, because um, you joined. You were in the RAF police, weren't you? I was, yeah. So I joined the RAF in '98. Um, did six years. Um, I did. I was based at two places. I, I spent first couple of years on just on an RAF camp doing normal police duties, and and I kind of say that lightly because, to be honest, wasn't a lot of policing done. Um, there wasn't a great deal needed to be done. Um, and I then decided I'd go and um, go to one of the specialist units. So I spent the rest of my time on a tactical wing, which was based out of um, Henlow up in Bedfordshire. And we were basically the kind of first port of call if needed any RAF police anywhere around the world. Um, right. So a bit of a mixture. Um, you know, I traveled all over and I was pretty lucky in that regard. We would go and do, um, we'd go, with, if there was a plane going to somewhere that didn't have a police contingency where they were landing, we'd go and we'd do everything from security of that plane would be our responsibility to doing the checks on people coming on board like you would going to any normal airport. Right. It's an interesting one for me because, um, you know, I was never in the military, any of the military policing. So you've obviously got the, the Royal Military Police for the Army. You've got yeah. the RAF Provost. That's the correct term, isn't it, for for the no, RAF? Oh, no, sorry. It's, it's the RAF Police. Is yeah. it? So, what's the Provost yeah. then? Is that is the that the Na is that the Navy? Yeah, the Navy uh, Provost branch. No, yeah, and it, we actually the RAF used to have um, the officers. I, I believe this has changed since I left, but it used to be the Provost branch for the officers. Um, but that then, I think, I believe now everyone is just RAF Police. Right. Okay. So that's an interesting one um, in terms of what makes you decide to, what was your sort of thinking around deciding to go into the RAF police? Because I know absolutely jack shit about um, what the RAF police do. Um, I kind of know a little bit about what the Royal Military Police do, only because you tend, when, I don't know if you had any um, involvement with them when you were in the Met, but yeah. occasionally you do come across them don't you because generally because a squaddy gets locked up 
generally for fighting, isn't it? And drunken fighting. And then the Royal Military Police turn up at the custody block and, and march them out. literally <laughs> march the, literally <laughs> march them out screaming and yeah. shouting at them, don't they? So I kind of know what the RMPs do, but what are the what are the um, you know the, the, the RAF police? Do you? I don't imagine you get the same level of discipline issues in the RAF that you would get in the army. No, definitely not. And I certainly early in my career there, when I was on um, an RAF base, yeah, crime was pretty low, discipline issues were pretty low. We did a lot of security work. That was kind of a traditional thing for the RAF police back in those days. Yeah, um, a lot of the security around the base, um, you know, even going far, so far as checking um, where the secret, top secret documents are stored, making sure they're locked away. Then, then there's different elements and some specialisation. So um, there'd be a specialist on whatever base you're on for um, a bit, a little bit like CID, I suppose. So an mm. SI specialist. Um, and then there'd be um, a counterintelligence specialist as well. So, and that back then was a lot to deal with um, kind of internet and, and people hacking, you know, oh, and, yeah, and yeah. Your, old, your old foes of the Russians and all the rest and counter insurgency kind of things. Yeah. Um, that was kind of the, the two niche. You then went on and there would be um, teams that were dedicated to certain areas around the country and mm. and drug teams and all the rest. But no, definitely crime definitely wasn't a massive issue. Yeah, in the and, and I mean, it's an interesting one in terms of talking about the security side of things. I mean, to what extent did you overlap with what the RAF regiment were doing? Because obviously they're much more a sort of a, um, you know, a, a physical military security of airfields aren't they i mean yeah. did you did you kind of overlap with them a little bit uh, yes a little bit and i believe the trade now has joined with them so um they come under the same umbrella um the rf police were always traditionally in charge of the security of of a base in say in the uk whether that be on the gate checking passes or the physical security of buildings mm. the regiment always um looked after kind of the physical side of, I suppose, the fence line, if you call it that, and things inside yeah. there. There was definitely an overlap, mm. um, a lot of competitiveness between the two. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then then when you went overseas, it was, again, it would overlap a lot again. Yeah, yeah. So you get to, you obviously do your, what is it, six years, you said? You did, I, uh... I did six in the end. I was probably intending to do a bit more, but um, mm -hmm. I ended up, well, I did quite a few, different tours, but ended up going out for the Iraq war, um, got pretty cheesed off with it, um, how we were treated. Right. Um, thought this is probably enough for me. Um, it was one of those, you train, you train, you train, and you're always told, if you go to war, you'll get everything you need, you know, you'll get the kit, everything yeah. will be laid on, and we went, and, and it was pretty poor at the start, especially. Right. Um, Probably not a lot different what's happening in policing now. So, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and I, and I just I got a bit bit annoyed with it, and I thought, well, that's me. You had mm. to give in those days. I gave eighteen months' notice. Really, bloody hell! So, so okay. long. yeah, massive, massive, a long time. Yeah, when you're starting to try and plan on what you might do, it's a huge, huge time. So, I gave my notice, and they got another tour out of me. I went to Afghanistan before I came out. Um, and then started trying to do courses to 
reintegrate right. into the, the outside world, as it were. Right. But it, finding yourself, presumably then, finding yourself unemployable in the real world, you decided to join the Metropolitan Police. <laughs> <laughs> that, that didn't even happen straight away, to be honest. I, I didn't really think of it when I came out. I was... I thought I'd try and make my, my millions and go into the corporate world. Um, I'd really struggled to get work, I must admit, when I first came out. I, I found everything I was going for, I was either told I had no corporate experience mm-hmm. or um, I was overqualified to do it. Right. And I, I really struggled. I Luckily, I found a, a local company to where I was living in. I was down in South End in Essex. Um, local firm and it was a, a family-run company run a, a chain of shops around the southeast yeah and and the old man who ran it was um very old school east Londoner. he'd been told that ex-military were what you need to go for yeah. so um, he gave me a chance and yeah. took me on the stairs security manager right so stayed there for a year um and then things started opening up so i ended up going up to london worked in hotels for a few years really right. really loved that um yeah. and that was probably although i say my first link into the police but mm. or civilian police anyway my uncle was a copper back in the day so i thought you know there'd been something there and around yeah, yeah. but i hadn't had much to do since you know childhood when when i was growing up and around him yeah, yeah. Um, went up to hotels and got quite into um knowing the local guys up there um and getting some liaison going and they, they were great some really good coppers i was working yeah. up in victoria in a hotel there um and there was a, a, a business initiative like a safer neighborhood team but for businesses mm. up there really good team really proactive so i got friendly with those um and and my career was plodding along loved the hotels and probably yeah. if i'd stayed there probably wouldn't have joined the police um but I was it's a really interesting off. world, isn't it? Hotel security. Oh. I mean, you deal with some weird shit doing that job, don't you? Oh, oh my god! I remember. So I mean, I never worked in central London, you know, where obviously you get the big hotels, the big chains, and whatnot, uh, as well as the you know the boutique hotels and what have you. But there's all sorts of weird shit goes on in these places, isn't there? Oh, unbelievable! I mean, we probably the weirdest thing I think we had. We, I came in one day and I had a very flamboyant general manager, French guy, that amazing guy, really flamboyant. If you can think of the most flamboyant Frenchman, you can, you'll, you'll be near <laughs> what he is. Did he, um, have a purple, did he have a purple velvet hat with a feather in it? it almost. He would come <laughs> in, he'd have the cravats on, very you know, boisterous. Yeah, great, great guy, great leader. I, wor- I worked with some people like that in special branch, to be fair. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> if you can picture him you're almost there but we came in one day and, and came into these pictures my overnight security guy had taken them and we had a, had a guest who'd obviously got on the lash he's down for work and he'd locked himself out of his room because he was he was drunk naked and then defecated all <laughs> over a corridor oh, and then tried to get in the wrong room <laughs> Some petrified guest has got this naked man covered in excrement trying oh to get my God. It's like a nightmare, isn't it? Oh, an absolute nightmare. So we, we came in the next day. He'd already booked out. He'd gone. So um, my, my general manager was absolutely content that he would speak to him the next time he was down. So we, we knew he'd booked. He, booked, he was a regular. So he's a regular you know, visitor. 
Oh, Regular okay. coming down on business, yeah. So we waited. We had to put a note on his his check-in that he needed to be called, like the general manager himself, get called. Nothing. Didn't come. Didn't check in. We thought he's given up. So we left, um, and we had an envelope with pictures from what the security guy had taken pictures. Oh God! for him, and a bill for the cleaner. Oh God! So um, so we left this for the night manager, and he, and he turns up, brazen as you like. And um, the night manager gives him the bill and he, I'm not paying that, refused. And he dropped the pictures on him. And he said, oh, well, if you're not, we'll have to speak to your company because he booked to do his business. So funny enough, he paid and never came back again. But Oh, God. I know the, the hospitality ones. industry is a funny one, isn't it? I mean, my God, you get you see all sorts, don't you? And uh, I mean, I did quite a few jobs before I, you know, when I was a student and before I joined the police. And, um, and most of them were in that kind of, that kind of ballpark you know and I mean I, I did a couple of years where I was working as a um a courier uh, or a campsite rep for the company Eurocamp I think it was uh Eurocamp or I did a couple there's two or three companies I worked for and uh, it was good fun you know summer summer holidays you know and um it was one particular site that I was working on uh I suppose how old was I about 2021 at the time and um the, the tents and caravans had to be absolutely spotless before um, uh, guests would arrive, you know. So you'd obviously have to, when the previous guest would leave, you'd have to clean the tent and caravan until it was absolutely gleaming. And we'd have, like, you know, managers come around doing spot checks, making sure that, you know, you were doing it properly. I mean, that was only part of the job. The rest of the job was, you know, working with the families and making sure they were okay during their holiday and whatnot. And... Um, uh, on one occasion, I, um, you know, I'd, I'd prepared the uh, caravan for this family arriving on their first day of their holiday. It was all spick and span and uh, showed them to where it was and uh, then went back to where, you know, I was staying. And, um, and then about, about an hour later, I could see the father marching, marching with angry face <laughs> towards the tent where I was sat outside. And um, he uh, he was absolutely fuming. He goes, and in, in his hand he had a teapot, and uh, he he thrust the teapot at me, and he goes, "What the fuck is this?" And I opened the teapot, and there was a massive turd inside oh. <laughs> inside the teapot. For yeah. God's sake! Oh, I was like absolutely mortified, and. Uh, <laughs> Well, I'm really sorry. I have no idea how that got there. <laughs> it wasn't me. Somebody had come along and done a shit in his teapot, and, you know, presumably thinking that was hilarious. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway, we digress. Um, <laughs> leave that. But you've got that. You've got that in your head now. So. Yeah, that's um, it. I know. I know it's weird. So anyway, so you, you decide to join the police then, yeah? Yeah, so yeah, luckily, really, I suppose in a way, I got um, I got drawn away from the hotels, and I went to work for Liberty of London. Um, right. In, what, are, what are they? Is that the fashion people? Yeah, yeah, it's like a, oh, I suppose a, a mini Harrods mm -hmm. um, in the middle of town there, and hated it. Absolutely hated it. Um, the, the worst place I'd ever worked in my life. Really? It was terrible. Um, just yeah, just an awful atmosphere and awful right. about it. it. Was the whole culture was terrible. Mm -hmm. So um, and I'd kept in contact with a lot of the police that I'd met 
um, at the hotels. So um, I had coffee with one one day, and he said, "Why don't you join the job?" Yeah. So I had thought about it. Anyway, went through the process. You know, was successful, and it was around the time when we were taking a massive intake. So it, I think it was probably because. Um, that time around the 80s that they'd taken those big intakes, obviously were coming to retirement mm-hmm. and they were building up ready for the Olympics. Right. So they were huge intakes. I think it was about 300 on my, right. my course. Um, so I was successful. So I'd had a massive argument with my boss um, one day and I knew I'd been successful. I was waiting for a course. Yeah, yeah. And he basically told me to to do one if I didn't like it. So I, I went in the next day with my resignation and and that was it. And he said, well, all right. And I knew that this was the way the company was. I knew they'd asked me to leave pretty quickly. So yeah, I gave him a reg- yeah. resignation in the morning. And a couple mm. of hours later, he comes down to my office and says, all right, when can you go? I said, I can't afford to walk out. I'm going to do my time. And and mm. I had a, in that, I had a clause. It was a three-month notice period. Mm. He said, no, you don't understand. When can you go? I said, I can't go. I can't afford to leave. He said, no, when can you go? We'll pay you. Just leave. All right, brilliant. So I packed the office up and um, <laughs> that was it. Got on the phone to recruiting and said, when can you get me in? So they had a course the following month. So I had a month off. And then um, off I went to Hendon. Excellent. So what, just sorry, just uh, remind me, what year was that then when you went to Hendon? So it was, I got my years wrong the other day. I was trying to work it out. It's the start of 2009. Right, okay. So we still had a, say we, I don't know why, why do I always say we as if A, as if I'm still in the <laughs> place, which, which I'm not, and B, uh, I'm not on the Met either. So, yeah. <laughs> so but for the purpose of this, um, that we, they still had a uh, training school then, didn't they? So Peel House. Yeah. Presumably, was still a fully functioning police training school in those days. Yeah. Oh, kind of. <laughs> it was. Um, it was at that time when you would go to um, Hendon and spend. I can't remember how many weeks it was there, and then you'd go out to your outside um, training areas. Mm. So, which for me, I I was posted to Tower Hamlets, and that's right. where the training school was for us as well. It was at Bethnal Green. All right. Okay. Right. So, um, yeah, like I so say, I can't remember how many weeks we did at Hendon, but we went to Hendon for the initial part. Then, then you went out to Bethnal Green. Right. Um, and then at the end of that, you did your street duties and then went back to Hendon again for the last couple of weeks doing yeah. your drill and, and all that kind of bit before you passed out. And you passed out at Hendon as well. Right. Okay. Yeah. So it was kind of a hybrid thing. So it wasn't that full on sort of no. 20 week residential thing that I did. But no. Yeah, so so you got posted to um, Tar Hamlets. So that's an interesting part of, well, so many interesting parts of London, aren't they? But obviously, yeah. very, very ethnically diverse, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Very, yeah. very deprived as well. I think it's probably yes. fair to say. And, uh, yeah, it is. Um, but with elements that were, well, I'd, I'd call it quite lefty. <laughs> so right. new kind of new money kind of... Um, yeah, your, your, your trendy kind of yeah. areas where people would yeah. know, internet workers and all yeah, the rest yeah, of yeah, yeah, that yeah. kind of well my daughter uh my daughter lives in Hackney, so it's yeah. very very similar sort of mm. area, you know. Um yeah. it was funny because I went into a pub with her the last time I was visiting her and um it was uh, if you could have if you could have had a I mean this is terrible, isn't it? And this makes makes me sound like such an old fart. 
but um, you know, if you could sort of picture in your head what a typical Guardian reader looks like. This pub was absolutely rammed with them. And yeah. uh, I'm, bless, I'm blessed them. They're all, I'm sure, lovely people and everything. But there was just such a, it was such a stereotype. There was such a stereotype of people in there uh, who, who probably would absolutely hate the police yeah. until they actually met one properly and spoke to them. And they think, you're actually all right, you know? Mm. But, it, but it was, it's a funny. So it's only the Tar Hamlets. Um, yeah, what was that like to police? Um, interesting, good, good. I really enjoyed it. Um, I purposely picked areas that I thought would would get me busy, um, and I'd learn from. And so all those kind of your G's and your H's. So Hackney was one I put down. Tower Hamlets. I can't remember what my third choice was, but so H was really good. I am. Um, I was a bit upset at that time. They were going; to, they were trialing a, a new thing for probationers, where you would do a stint on everything. So, mm. and I actually got put straight into a safer neighbourhood team, um, mm. which I was pretty upset about at the time because it wasn't what I wanted to do. I thought. Um, you but I went to, to, what, did you, what did you want to do? Response. Yeah, on it. You know, as yeah, everyone yeah. does, you want to go yeah. out. Yeah, yeah. Driving around fast and yeah, yeah. Doing doing what you think everybody does now on the bill but I, it was actually a really good really good learning curve for me um i went to a busy safe and hate neighborhood team um in bow mm -hmm. uh, which had a lot of gang issues um it was right on the border of hackney so the gang issues between e3 and and the hackney areas were pretty prevalent um mm -hmm. you know stabbings we read some murders down there while i was there were drugs were rife um, so it was a really good learning curve. The team I went on to were excellent, really good proactive sergeant who just, he got promoted out of TSG um, and gone there. The governor was brilliant, um, very old school. Um, and, and it was just a good team, a good mix of players, really. So you you would have had a lot of life experience by that stage, wouldn't you? Because you spent those I was, years. I was a late joiner. Place. Yeah, yeah. Well, you <laughs> That's must what have I was told. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so how old were you when you joined? Um, so I was nearly thirty. So oh bloody hell, you were a late joiner. Yeah. Weren't you? That yeah. was that's what the governor said to me when I got my first meeting with him. <laughs> you're you're a late joiner. <laughs> but I kind of envied people like you because when I joined, I didn't I didn't know my ass from my elbow, quite honestly, um, for the first couple of years. And it took me, and I make this is part of. Sorry, I don't want to digress, but this right. is what this is why I'm not a big fan of policing degrees, because I think you end up um, attracting people who are uh, just probably not quite, you know, that sort of robust, uh, experienced people who who are able to hit the ground running. And uh, and I actually, for me anyway, I can speak for myself. I think having a degree was a was an impediment. Really, I I've, I I over I over overthought things far too much. Um, so yeah, so being a late joiner, I think. Did you feel uh, that you were able to get the hang of it a lot quicker than your younger, less experienced colleagues? Yeah, I think so. Definitely, I think the having the RAF background was really beneficial because, especially going through training school. I kind of got it all already. Um, you know, when I went through my RAF police school, um, definitions were drilled into you. You'd have mm. to know everything, you know, word by word. So 
Um, it, I found that quite easy when I moved into and, and putting that into practice. So, and, and helping the others on maybe on the course, just getting their head around what the law says and how you put that into, into yeah. actually doing it. Yeah, um, yes. I did find that pretty easy and just talking to people, which is what 90% of the work is, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Is, is. And, you know, from the, the young lads on the street corner through to you, your serious crooks, if you can talk to them, then yeah. you've won half the game, haven't you? Absolutely. And that's, again, I've, I've had this, I've, I've published this uh, top 10 list of issues, mm. that I, you know, things I'd like to see changing around the police, which was then picked up and republished yesterday by Policing Insight um, yeah. magazine. And, um, you know, and that's the, it's what you've just said there is just absolutely so common sense to me. And as to most people is that policing is about people, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's about being able to talk oh, to right. people. Yeah, and uh, you know you can know every criminological theory in the world about um, you know crime and justice and uh, everything, all of that stuff, but it doesn't fundamentally help you to build a relationship with someone on the street in real time. And you're starting to hear these horror stories now, aren't you? Of um, I heard a funny one the other day about uh, some of the new recruits about this uh, new PC being out with their tutor constable and the PC rang the door bell of the sort of to speak to the member of the public. And then before the door was answered, he ran away, ran away. He was actually scared, scared to talk oh. to, you know what I mean? And you just yeah. think, what the hell is going on? Yeah. I know that's, I know that's going, that's not going to be typical. And that's, you know, yeah. I know, I know that, but just illustrates the point that, if you can build relationships with people, it's you're halfway there, aren't you? Yeah, of course it is. And everything we do is about relationships, isn't it? From from the domestic you go to through to the, the sad person that we deal with to you interviewing your crooks. If you don't make a relationship in that interview, then you're not going to get anywhere. You know, and I try and drill this into to some of my team now, especially the young in service, that it, you don't have to be a robot. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the easier you make it flow for them um, in an interview, then the more you're likely to get something out of them. Yeah, but I suppose that that stuff doesn't just happen overnight, does it? To be fair, no. I think no. you know if you've had if you've had a broad range of, I suppose where I was maybe um, looking back on having just said what I said about having been a graduate, that was a that wasn't helpful to me. What was helpful to me definitely was the fact I'd done a lot of public facing jobs. Um, yeah. You know, before joining the police, I dealt with the public a lot in those sort of jobs with the, like the turd in the teapot type jobs. Yeah. You know? yeah. And, um, and, and that was really, really helpful because, yeah. uh, you know, you know how to talk to people. But um, so, mm -hmm. so um, how long did you spend at um, Tar Hamlets then? So I was there for just after, not long after my probation. So I was, again, I was, I've been pretty fortunate, I think. I think sometimes you make your own luck. That's what I like to think. Mm. So I, I spent some, um, the time at the Safe Neighbourhood team. I then went on response. And then I got a phone call, in fact, off my old sergeant from the Safe Neighbourhood team who'd been earmarked to head up a new squad. So a proactive team covering the whole of the North East area mm -hmm. um it was a uh, i don't know if it's still around but at the time it was uh vault i don't know if you've heard that 
Mm. So it was the theory was if you remove one of these things out the vault, then um, mm. you won't have a crime. So victim, offence, location, time. All oh, right, okay. Take one of those out, and and you don't have a crime. Right. That that was the thinking. So they set up um, a team, and it was it was made up. We had three teams on there, and each one, the two big teams were made up predominantly of the two big areas, so Hackney and Tower Hamlets, mm. and the third team were made up of. Um, a few of the others, so your Dagnum Redbridge, that kind of out that way. Um, So I did that for almost a year, and that was that was some of the best work I've done, all proactive. And was that um, plain clothes work, or was that uniform, but kind of a bit of a mix? It was a mixture of everything, so that predominantly uniform officers. We had, each team had two CID officers assigned to us. Um, it was head up by a chief inspector and we had an analyst as well working for us. Mm. And um, we, they would basically look at um, crime maps and say, okay, and we st- we probably spent most of our time in Redbridge um, mm. dealing with burglars. Right. Um, and, and it was the old, right, that map's glowing red, put them in there and, and it was down to, uh, the, or the skipper was acting up as an inspector, him and, and the the other skippers to uh, to work out how we do it, whether that was plain clothes, hitting doors. We did a lot of diversionary kind of stuff with, we just go and visit burglars all the time. You know, they come out of jail and we just go and see them. What are you doing yeah. today? You know, and, and we do that every day for a week. What are you yeah. doing? You know, starts, stopping st- girlfriends. Starts to, it starts to really piss them off, doesn't it, after a while? It does, yeah. Building up yeah. a picture of what they're wearing and what oh, they're yeah. doing, who, who they're with. Yeah, um, and this is and this is a you make a really another really good point there that this is, I think something that has been lost again, um, because people are just overwhelmed with bollocks uh, demand now within the system that is just stuff that would not have been even looked at um, for two seconds, yeah. 15, 15 years ago or whatever, um, and you know if you want to suppress crime. It's dead simple, really. You need to understand who's committing the crime mm. and then you need to hound the fuck out of them, basically, yeah. until they either stop committing crime or we get them in prison. It's yeah. really not that complicated. And yeah. there was a time during that period of time, I remember when acquisitive crime, and this is a big in the news at the moment, you've probably, I don't know if you've seen this in the UK, the Chief Inspector of Constabulary, Andy Cook, has come out to say, you know, the, the police response to acquisitive, serious acquisitive crime is completely inadequate. The detection mm. rates are, are woefully bad. And I would love to know, um, you know, whether even this stuff happens now, because I can remember during the time when acquisitive crime was the thing that we really focused on, we yeah. would be, we would literally be um, dragging people out of bed to check on their bail conditions three, mm. four times a day. Mm. and maybe twice during the night and 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 if you hadn't checked someone's bail conditions to make sure they were at home or abiding by the curfew or whatever Mm. um there would be a a post-mortem about why it was that you didn't check that person you know at three at three o'clock in the morning and that's Mm. and that's what you need to do isn't it you need to have that that relent relentless focus on the people who are causing you a problem isn't it Oh, for sure, and and dealing with it robustly when they when they are breaching it, or, or you know, that's where you get them back inside. So, and 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 we did that. We did 
as we talked about, you know, visiting people, that was an easy tactic. Well, we'd then go and hound the um, the cash converters in the pawn shops. Yeah, yeah. And we'd hound them out of taking anything, you know. Yeah. And, we'd, and we'd sit up playing clothes around the cash converters. Or, yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, well, it's, like shoot, it's like shooting fish in the barrel, isn't oh, it, really? Yeah, and you'd get all sorts. You get, All of a sudden, you've got <laughs> a load of gear on them and, and weapons and all the rest. It's brilliant. You know, it was really good work, really good work. It was fun, really fun. Earned yeah. a lot of money. There was a lot yeah. of overtime in it. Yeah. Um, you know, we um, probably the, the best job wasn't even, it wasn't even a, a, um, a coincidence crime job, and that's what our target was. I think the best job we did was one of those radio calls, can someone stop something? Stop a, it was a truck. Can, mm. Sorry, van, trucks yeah. over here. Um, yeah. Somebody stop, just needs stopping, and make sure you have a look in the back of it. <laughs> so yeah we'll do it all quiet on the radio we'll do it so we're yeah. going to stop this this van guys no criminal history at all the driver older guy and i'll talk about it because i'm pretty sure it, you know it's been through the courts and, and all, mm. all the rest for now mm. um eventually we get in the back and this it was one of those loosened trucks you know the the forklift thing at the mm. back yeah, yeah it is chocker block with boxes yeah. vacuum packed drugs and there's everything in there Oh my god! Vacuum pack. I've never seen anything like it. So anyway, he's under arrest. He's off back to the station. What do we do with his truck? So a few phone calls going. Right, take it back to the local Nick where we were working. We had the office out. No problem. So, so then the panic comes in. Mm. Hang on a minute. It's only us. We got yeah. You know, what we got? We've got some spray and, and a baton. Yeah, <laughs> so there's yeah. three of us in this Luton van. And somebody had said, well, they <laughs> must prob- know where... Probably about 10 million times worth of drugs yeah. or something. Yeah. yeah. And we thought, they must know where it is. Whoever it is must know that there must be a tracker or something on it. Yeah, yeah. So one of us has got our spray out. One's got it battered out. And we just hope for the best. <laughs> Drive it back to the station. We're in the backyard. And it just so happened the, uh, the borough commander was there for a meeting that day. And she came out. And she's had a chat with us. Said, "What are you doing?" She said, "Oh, we've got this this bloody Luton van full of drugs." Well, that was it. She said, "Well, they'll just come in here and kill you for it." So we weren't panicking enough. We were oh, now thanks. pretty panicking. Yeah. Thank you, Mum. That makes me feel just a, whole, come and get that a whole lot better. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, phone call goes in. She said, "All right, we've got got some armed response coming." Next thing you know, whatever unit was was looking at it all turns up. Proper old school leather yeah. jacket, have it a fag. Bit of egg yolk in the time. Yeah, I'll, I'll take it. So I, I'll drive it back to our base and off it went. So that was it, last we saw of it. So, oh, no, it's funny. Good, but the, good that's, what, that's what they use this, the CMPG for, the Central Motorway Patrol Group now. They just like tee them up and off they go, you know? Yeah, just going to stop this. So, did you join um, the TSG eventually? I seem to remember you yes. saying in, in our messaging. Yeah. Yeah, so after about six months on a, on that proactive team, I put in for the TSG um, and was successful. So I, I managed to get another six months on the proactive team because they knew I was I was going to go anyway. I was only supposed to have done six months. Um, so I managed to get a year out of that and then went to the TSG. So I went three area at Chadwell Heath. All right, okay. So we were laughing, weren't we, on our messaging about... Um north of the river south of the river thing isn't it it's such a thing mm. in the net isn't it it's like i was always south of the river and uh you always you'd say that if you went north of the river you'd get a nosebleed wouldn't you <laughs> we'd, <laughs> so you, we'd take you our passports to go south <laughs> <laughs> so 
so uh, so yeah how was that how was the tsgo thick we used to call them uh, as you know thick and stupid group didn't we um yeah. but uh what, how did you find that i i loved it that's probably one probably some of my best time there um only did must have last couple of years year and a half two years there before i came out here but it was great it was um for all the the reputation of what they get real really professional bunch of people that wanted to be there um and wanted to work you know th mm. there was great camaraderie great teamwork a real drive for arrests you know a yeah. competition really between the units who's yeah. getting how many bodies in yeah. um so some really good work earned a lot of money there as well <laughs> yeah good did you do Kings of overtime did you do your surveillance course there or anything? No, no, I didn't. No, no, I was involved in a couple of just as arrest teams in a couple of jobs with the guys that had, because obviously a lot of the guys had done their surveillance, their foot follow course anyway. Um, but I, I wasn't there long enough to, it was very pecking order, mm. um, people going in. I was young in service when I got there, even though I was a late joiner. Um, yeah. I hadn't done a lot, hadn't done a lot of time by the time I got there anyway. So I was pretty pretty much down the pecking order for that. Did you get um, used? Did you get uh, used in anger in a public order sense? Yeah, we did a lot of public order work. It, it's a funny and it is a funny beast of TSG in that we're the specialists in it, but they don't want to use us ever. Mm. And um, and the, the guys who have been there around the houses a lot and have been on the TSG a lot always used to say, in fact, public um, level two officers probably get used more. Um, because so that's they, an interesting one. Why do you think that is? I think it's a case of TSG's got a terrible reputation um, with you know complaints and all the rest, heavy handedness, I suppose. Um, mm. And and they like to keep us in the background, and it'll be oh your reserve, and but all you'd end up doing a lot of the time is going from pillar to post trying right. to get there, and then they'd send you somewhere else. So yeah. Um, yeah. We were we did get used a lot. Obviously, we they'd always have to have a, a level one response, so we'd um, we'd yeah. get sent stuff. The football was probably the the best stuff we'd do, where they they'd kind of unleash us a little bit more. Right. Yeah. Um, like the cat a matches, you know, down to your neck of the woods, Millwall or West yeah. Ham. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did a lot of West Ham matches. One of my first um, football matches on TSG was West Ham Cardiff. Which was interesting. Tasty. Oh, tasty, yeah. So they after they'd had some problems, I think two years before that, and um they decided that all the Cardiff fans had to come on the buses. So can you imagine that coming down trying to get their, the buses in? It was it was mayhem. Even the West Ham team. So we ended up um, my unit ended up escorting the West Ham bus into the ground. Right. Which was chaos. Probably more so because one of one of the guys on the unit, who I won't name because I'm sure he's still in the job, was um, he was in the lead carrier and he was supposed to be um, guiding us in. So we picked him up. They were staying out by Canary Wharfway in a hotel, and we had to take him in. But he got completely lost. Right. So the carriers and the West Ham bus are just doing loops around the roundabouts out there. He had no idea, and all of a sudden you see the, everyone pulls up, the bus stops. He gets chucked out. Somebody else goes in the front. <laughs> he got berated by the governor at the end. <laughs> give, give that man a sat nav. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was the old school that, even though with that, the old MDT systems, it was very old school. Get the book out and use the book. 
So we'd have the big old A to Z. Oh, God, yeah. I've got many, many memories of using those big A4 geography, as we called them, didn't we? Yeah. Like um, on on surveillance, you would have one of those literally on your lap, and yeah, uh, yeah trying to drive uh, and navigate and use the radio and think about what the subject's doing under surveillance. And oh my god, it's like multitasking yeah. on steroids, really. So um, yeah, and that was yeah, very so, simple. <laughs> so I'm conscious of um, we've got a lot to cover with uh, the whole decision to go to Australia. So what prom- prompted yeah. you to go to Australia? Never, never thought of it at all. Um, and then a good friend of mine had gone uh, maybe five or six years before that and done the jump from the Met out to here. Mm-hmm. And he just emailed me one day and said, they're coming back. They're coming back to recruit. You should have a look at it. Um, and I never, ever thought in a million years the wife would be up for it. So I didn't even tell her for ages. It was when the Olympics were on. So I was working all hours um, at the Olympics. And eventually said to her, oh, Matt's emailed me, he said they're recruiting in Australia again. Do we, do we fancy it? She said, oh, just put it in. Just put an application in. So I'm not going to bother if, I'm, if you don't want to go. I never thought she'd leave the family. Right, yeah. She said, oh, put it in. So I did and then start the process and go for testing. And, and did you have kids at this stage? Yeah, we had yeah, both girls. So right. And that was another thought. I thought she'll never take them away from her mum and everyone. Yeah, um, yeah. But kept going through that process and kept getting to the next stage. And she'd say, yeah, just keep going, keep going. And, and lo and behold, eventually I get accepted. And I was on aid. Um, we were uptown for New Year's Eve and sitting on the carrier. And I got my email come through that my visa was here and I've been accepted. So that was oh, us. Wow. And that's Western yeah. Australia. So, Western so just Australia. Uh, so correct me if I'm wrong here. The, the way that policing is done in Australia is that it's based on a, on each state having its own state police, isn't that right? Yeah. yeah. And then you've got the federal police sitting on top of that, is that right? Yeah. It, okay. It's um, quite similar, I suppose, to the American system. Right. Um, so the states and territories have all got their own police force, and then, um, yeah, the AFP sit on top as a, right. as a bit like FBI, I suppose. Right, okay. So you applied to Western Australia, and that's where you are now, is that right? Yeah. So... That I imagine when you get that email, uh, it must be exciting and terrifying all at the same time, really. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and um, to uplift everything, you know, and especially the kids, bring them out. So, how old were your kids, if you don't mind asking at the time? Young. Um, so, they're 13 and 15 now. So, we've been here nine years. So. Right. Okay. So, yeah, they were pretty young. Yeah. Yeah. So, what, what was, what did that feel like leaving the Met? Um, knowing, you know, did you was that an emotional experience leaving um, England, leaving the Met and everything? I think leaving England, obviously, family and friends that you leave behind. Not mm. so much the Met. I didn't find that as bad as I had when I left the Air Force to go into nothing um, right. because I knew I was coming into another job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So I didn't find that as as hard as it, uh-huh. as it was when I left the Air Force. But obviously, leaving family and everyone coming over, you yeah. know, coming hours away so yeah yeah and where where um did you move to in western australia when you first landed so we first of all we were pretty lucky again we'd organized everything from the uk um because there'd been a course come over about three months before us so we'd um you know through the power of facebook and all the rest we'd have meetups and kept in contact and we'd arranged a house a rental 
from the UK. So landed on the Friday, stayed in a hotel a couple of nights and then moved in the house. And we were in a place called Baldivis, which is South Perth. Um, it's about 30 minute drive from the centre of Perth. Right. OK. And had you decided, you know, how much how much kind of say did you have in terms of where where you were going to be working geographically? Um, you kind of it was a case of south and north of the river. <laughs> right. Again, a bit like London. So um, I'd put south and I, I think I picked a couple of areas that I didn't know anywhere. So I just picked right. out areas that I thought might might be good yeah. to work in. Yeah. Um, and I picked out, I ended up getting sent to Fremantle, which is um, quite a well-known place. Uh, and beautiful. It was, it's a great city. It's probably the first place that I've worked that I've been happy to take the kids and family to. Uh, really? Out of work. really? Um, wow. But didn't really enjoy the work there. It wasn't very busy. Um, a lot of nighttime economy stuff at the weekends. Yeah, yeah. Um, and fa I found it pretty hard at the start um, trying to get, because... What they do is it was a shortened course, a transitional course to come over. Right. So did you do that course in the UK before coming over? or No, you came over and did it at the academy here. So um, WA Police have got an academy, right. um, which is upset in Joondalup up near a university. So they kind of share a big campus. Right. Um, very open. It's not like what you'd imagine back home, you know, not like Hendon. It's all open plan. Right. Um, so anyone can wander in. Okay. Um, Apart from the obviously the swipe cards on the doors, but the whole yeah. the parade squares are all open and the whole area is yeah. Um, so and, and you do a transitional course. So it's a short and thirteen week course, and it is really just quickly teaching you bits um, that you need to hit the ground running. Yeah, um, and, and, and firearms and what um, in terms of the legislation, uh, how similar is it to? to the UK legislation? I mean, was it, or is it, is it based on British laws on it? Yeah, it's very similar. And that's probably one of the big reasons why they, they recruit heavily from the UK, uh, right. what they have done, because it is pretty similar. Um, mm. you, and there's a, an equivalent to PACE over here as well, which I believe was written um, along the lines of PACE. So I'd, if you can imagine pace and put a, a a friendly slant on it, because we're very friendly over here, yeah. um, to the point, you know, if you search someone, you should ask them permission before you search them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If they yeah. don't give you permission, you can tell them that well, they could be arrested for obstructing you, but you ask yeah. them permission still. Um, it's yeah, it's a friendly slant, but the, the legislation is pretty similar. So that's and that that's an easy way of jumping over here, I suppose. Yeah. So I suppose. Um, if in doubt, you can almost initial. I would imagine initially, if in doubt, you've just got to almost stick to the spirit of pace or whatever, and you can't go far wrong, can you really? No, no that's it. It's um, and and what I always and I've always done it. If it feels wrong, it probably is wrong somewhere. Just yeah. got to work out why. <laughs> yeah, ex exactly. So, so how did you find the? Oh, there's so many questions I could ask. How did you find the? culture of Australian policing initially compared to British policing was it did you feel welcomed when you landed was it a kind of a I, th I think traditionally there's been a bit of animosity towards um, people coming over so um, and various names that we were called along the way um, mm. I found when I went to I got posted Fremantle like I said I the problem with Fremantle was no one wanted to go there 
So, um, and that was why, and, and that was just around the station at the time and parking and things like that. It was just one of those places people didn't particularly want to go. So mm. you would find it was full up with transitional officers coming from the UK because we didn't know any better. Right. And probation, which, um, so then that the issues were, and what I used to do is so you'd go out with a probationer and you'd say, all right, look, I'll talk to everyone. I'll do all the talking, but I have no idea what I'm doing with paperwork yet. So yeah. you do that when we go back to the office. And that's how you got by. And it, it was chaos if there were two of you together, two transitional officers together. Because <laughs> neither of you knew what you'd do. So. <laughs> but I suppose if it wasn't that busy operationally, then it's kind of limited how much trouble you can get yourself into i suppose yeah yeah and, and like i say again you, you deal with something and you knew something was wrong you might not quite know your, your sections of the acts that you might be working on but a burglar's a burglar and a thief's a thief you know yeah 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 it's yeah. when you're coming back and you're trying to, and you can interview people that's fine you then try and do the paperwork in some of the systems and you think oh, i'm lost now completely yeah um Unfortunately, there was a few supervisors at the time that we had there um, that uh, were kind of the opinion of, well, you've been in the job so long, you should know, um, yeah. and which was was awkward. Um, but I didn't last. I didn't last there very long, to be honest. Um, right. We we decided that we needed to try and make some money, and because um, we wanted to build or buy a house. Right. So we um, we thought we'd go out what we call regional here. Um, I mean. Western Australia is massive. It's huge. Yeah, I'm just looking at a map, I'm just looking at a map on Google Maps as we talk, and it is yeah. bloody massive, isn't it? it oh my yeah, god, it's, it's ridiculous. So, and um, policing in the regional areas is can be quite lucrative. Um, Why is that? Uh, different different reasons depending on where you go, but um, reduced rent for that. You get government housing, so you pay reduced rent on that, or free rent in some places. Right attraction bonuses to go to certain towns and the further north you go um, the more money you start making so they do um, in, once you get over a certain area you start doing 44 hour shifts so you do an extra day a fortnight so you get paid for that right uh, and lots of overtime and and the rest so I, I ended up going to a beautiful little town I've just been there all day today actually it's not far from where we live now called Harvey and um, oh, very... I'm, going to, I'm going to Google that. that. <laughs> Western Australia. Yeah. Right. And we, um, we, I got accepted, applied for that, came down here, and it's a seven-man station, so sergeant and six. All right. So, so in Western Australian terms, just looking at that on the map, it's not that far away from Perth, but probably in British terms, it's a, it's probably, a, it's probably a long way away, isn't it? Yeah. It's about an hour and a half to the centre of Perth. All right. Okay. So not that far then. But if you no. look, and I, I would encourage anybody who's listening to this, just fire up Google Maps and have a look at the size of Western Australia. Oh, my God. I mean, how much bigger would Western Australia be to... It's got to be bigger than Europe, isn't it? I'm not... There is a... I've seen an illustration where they put Europe into Australia, and I can't remember. I think we may fit... It's, let I did me, have a look just because I thought you might ask. It's, it's about, so this is very, very unscientific. This is super unscientific, but this is probably, I reckon it's probably the size of uh, Spain, Portugal, France, uh, you know, Austria, Italy, all combined, I suspect, yeah. by that size. So at least yeah. half of the size of Europe, isn't it? Yeah, it's huge. You know, to drive um, right up to the north, 
then it takes you days. You know, it's not it's not a little trip. So um, obviously that place, Harvey, that you described, um, still relatively close to you know the main population centres. But I would yeah. imagine, have, have you worked in any of the really remote areas of Western Australia? No, no, no. Luckily, well, luckily, I've not put my hand up for it. Just mainly around with the children. My kids now they're both at high school, so we don't want to go too far um, mm. afield, really. Um, just to keep them in a good education until they they right. finish. So, but when you when you went to Harvey, um, what was the sort of main difference there compared to Fremantle? Uh, just a small station. You deal with a lot more on your own. Um, it was a busy, beautiful town. An underlying little small element of criminality and drugs, like anywhere. Um, yeah. But you could get stuck in. It was pretty. If you wanted to be proactive, you could make as much work as you wanted to make. Yeah. Um, so if you look on the map, there was two highways that run through the area, the Harvey area. They yeah. take you down to the south of the country. So as yeah. you know, as drug routes and and criminality coming down. If yeah. you get out on the highway, there's lots there to stop and, and get involved with. So it was a real good learning, especially coming over here, a really good learning place for me to learn yeah. all the legislation, the you know, policies, procedures, and the, the systems. Yeah. And how many would you how many of you would have been based at that um, station? So there were seven of us. So sergeant in charge was the officer uh -huh. in charge of the station and, and six constables. Right. And um what were the I mean, it's a massive generalisation because um, you know everyone's different. But the the public, how do they sort of respond to policing in Australia compared to your experiences in London? I I kind of describe it, and I might be doing it a disservice because I've only been like to America on holiday. I always think America maybe is twenty years in front of the UK and in attitude and violence and and the, mm. all the, the rest. And then Australia maybe is 20 years behind the UK. So there's still a lot of, I, I feel there's still a lot of respect. Um, there's there? not oh. as much violence towards officers um, than, than what you'd expect in the UK uh, or what you would get in the UK. Um, mm. And the, the community, especially in smaller communities, absolutely yeah. love you. Really? Um, yeah, I mean, like I said this morning, I, I still play. I play football for the um, the Harvey team still. So I've been down there this morning. It's my day off, and raising money. We've been doing raffles and things, and so many people that I knew from working there, you know, come up and have a chat with you and all the rest. It's still there's a lot of respect there. Really? Oh, that's that's nice to hear that. Um, God, I'm bloody envious because I mean, as you know. Um, it's a pretty thankless job, isn't it, being in the police in the UK? And, um, yeah. you know, the amount of shit that they get given is it's just unacceptable, I think. It's just unacceptable. Yeah. And uh, I don't is. think it's, it's, it's uh, how that, you know, that's been allowed to happen, hasn't it? It's probably a cultural, generational, societal thing, isn't it? But uh, it is appallingly bad. And, and I do feel very sorry, particularly for younger officers now joining who are having to deal with all of that as well as yeah. that whole issue of camera phones and yeah. all of that yeah. having camera phones shoved in their faces all that i don't imagine given what you just said there i don't suppose that's a major problem for the street oh, yeah it still happens still happens but we've um for a good couple of years now we've all had body-worn cameras so i find mm -hmm. that 
is as much as there was a lot of um, worry about it when it came in, I think it saves a hell of a lot on complaints. Yeah. And, you know, even now as the supervisor and complaints I've dealt with where you just quite easily write them straight off because you watched the camera and it just didn't happen. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Simple as that. So just on that one then, um, from a career point of view, um, what's the, obviously in the UK, it's PC, Sergeant, Inspector and various acting and temporary ranks and things like that in between. I mean, how does it work in Australia? So um, the constable rank is split and it's time and, and in a way um, passing courses, but online courses. So after five years, you become a first class constable. You just have to sit on some online courses. Right. Um, and you get it. And then um, another couple of years and you become senior constable um, and you'll sit a senior constable then unless you get promoted. So, which I did, I got promoted about three years ago to my sergeants. So mm. um, after sergeant, you got senior sergeant, which mm. probably is more of equivalent of an inspector back home. Mm -hmm. um, then an inspector who's probably more equivalent of a chief inspector, um, right. superintendent, and then up as you would. Right. Up to commissioner right okay so you're a sergeant now is that right mm, yeah right, okay and you mentioned something interesting in our sort of message exchanges that you were the grand commander on some logging protests <laughs> so, so that's yeah. interesting because i don't suppose we get logging protests in the uk uh, and unless somebody's going to contact me from police scotland and say oh no we get <laughs> logging protests all the time that's really shit sky accent, isn't it <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Sound like Mrs. Yeah. Dightfire there, doesn't it? <laughs> At least you don't look like it. <laughs> so what's that all about? What's a, is that uh, an, ecolo an, an environmental yeah. issue? Obviously. Yeah, I'll, I'll be careful what I say because um, it's still ongoing. But we've um, there's a, a massive new road being put in, a huge project around here um, to bypass Bunbury, which is where I work, which is the second biggest city out of Perth. Um, and it's just a, a, a straight bypass to avoid the traffic because we get a lot of traffic going down, holiday makers going south to the, the nice places down there, the wine regions, everything. Um, and so this is about an environmental impact. So, um, and I think in particular um, around some of the wildlife. Right. Um, we've had some protests around. So, but probably quite different to the protesters I deal with in the UK anyway. Generally, they're, they're, they're pretty nice people to speak to. Um, all right, they're okay. all pretty committed. Um, a lot of them are, I, I can't remember what they call themselves, but there's a lot of grannies there. All right, okay. So it's not... <laughs> Granny uh, fighters. It's not It's not people um, sort of like super gluing themselves to the road and... Uh, all not quite. Happens. We've had a few lock-ons, um, lock right. themselves onto some equipment or climb some trees um, yeah. but we've managed to get them away pretty peacefully so it's not oh. been too bad but um so yeah I'll you, down. Cool. so you uh, you do you carry do you carry firearms routinely yeah firearms and taser all right okay so how was that as a a um sort of a cultural issue because uh yeah i mean it's a completely different uh, thing carrying a gun every single day how did you find that um I, doing the actual act daily doesn't has not worried me because i was used to it in the air force we, we carried right, every day of course yeah um 
what I find or have found strange is when you're dealing with public order kind of incidents or going into pubs and clubs. Yeah, yeah. You know, it just worries me. You you stand, you end up standing there with your hand near your gun just to make sure no one tries to remove it. You know, there's locking yeah. mechanisms, but yeah, that yeah, always yeah. worried me in the back of my head at first, especially when it came over here. And just, uh, I mean, is there much gun crime in uh, in Australia? No, no, violent crime's incredibly low. You know, working working Tower Hamlets, you routinely go to a couple of stabbings a night, you know, over the weekend and yeah, yeah. and shootings and, and the like. Um, but here it's incredibly low, luckily. And violent crime's low, serious crime is pretty low as well. So yeah, so you'd you'd gotta have to it's it's a weird one, isn't it? Because here's us in the UK mm. in a country that has been uh, had a, a, an epidemic of gun and knife crime where the chances of being stabbed or shot as a british police officer are now quite high i would suggest yeah. um whereas you're describing a situation over there where there isn't the same threat at all and yet people are routinely armed it's a weird one isn't it um, I mean, the threat is there obviously and you do um, there are instances you know probably every year or two, couple of years, there'll be instances where people um, are armed and, and might go, There's and shootings happen. You know, they do happen in protection. Quite often, yeah. sadly, a lot of that is is linked into mental health issues or drug issues. Yeah. Um, but I suppose the difference is we have the ability to protect ourselves. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. If need be, and if, if words and, and actions don't stop it, then then we have the ability to to use firearms. So, um, there must, and there must, I would imagine, there must be some quite uh, odd people, particularly in those very very remote parts of Australia, where they're just not seeing other people. They're not, you know. I can imagine there's a lot of loneliness, a lot of mental health issues, a lot of alcoholism probably a lot of domestic violence um yeah. and it it would be fascinating wouldn't it to go and work in one of those very very remote parts of yeah. australia just for yeah. a while just to see what it was like you know um a good one of my colleagues uh, when i first got promoted i worked with him on shift another sergeant he went he's just spent a couple of years up at a really remote location called blackstone you look that up have a look on google maps for that yeah um, real remote it's actually on the border of northern territories and south australia so that you get sworn yeah. into all three oh, so okay. he can cross the border and help out in, oh, okay. in anywhere there um but yeah very interesting not yeah. something i've had seen yeah that. no the reason the reason i say that was because many years ago before i joined the police um i did some traveling and um i spent some time on i don't know what possessed me to go there um a little island um, in the Tasman Sea, halfway between Melbourne and Tasmania, a place called King Island, which mm. is very, very famous for its um, meat and cheese, brie and specifically. But yep. it's it's an unbelievably remote place. And um, I got picked up uh, hitchhiking one day by this guy who gave me the creeps like you know what i mean you just every every sort of hair on the back of your neck is standing up um you just think um oh, i don't feel happy with this person at all he i got into his kind of big four before 
and he had this kind of heavy metal playing really really loud so you couldn't have had a conversation even if you wanted to it was mm. very clear from his demeanor that he didn't want to talk um anyway and and he looked like a um he looked a bit crazy quite honestly and um and then i turned around and there was two or three guns on a gun rack behind, yeah. behind his head in the van yeah and and i started feeling really really uncomfortable by that and mm. um and i made some excuse um uh, to get out of the van uh and it was i was thinking well i don't i don't know where the hell i am um yeah. I, I i knew where i was going but i didn't i didn't want to be in that van with them i just thought this is not going to end well potentially mm. um so i made some excuse and he did drop me off but um i kind of scarpered into the into the bush and uh <laughs> basically <laughs> i basically hid from him you know what i mean but and i, and I was thinking I and nothing happened in the end, but it was one of those things and it could have gone really badly wrong, you know, and yeah. and there was something about him that just really freaked me out. And I yeah. imagine there's probably a lot of people like that in those very yeah. remote communities. Yeah, and it is because everything's so vast here and you'll quite often find people won't leave the areas they were brought up in. And mm. even as far down here, you know, people might not have ever been to Perth. Um, mm. And it is a little strange, I think. Well, I, I found it strange that in that case, but they're quite happy. They're really good communities a lot of the time. Um, very close, yeah. close near. I've spent last year, I spent five weeks in a in a very small town further south. I went to cover the, the sergeant's position down there, just a three-man station. Mm. So and very good local community, very pro-police, loved us. Um, mm. but yeah, people that would are there they born there they'll die there and they'll very mm. likely not go anywhere else yeah yeah no it's a it's a funny one isn't it when i was in new zealand as well um i was way up in the north far north of new zealand and again hitchhiking and um i got picked up by two guys who were new zealand police but they were in plain clothes and they were actually um going out to repair or sort out some kind of telecommunications equipment way way in the very very remote part of the north of the north island yeah and uh, and i tagged along with them for a couple of days they were really good guys and one night we went into this bar um way way up like is it six mile oh god anyway there's a 50 mile something or other there's like it's just about as far as up north in the north island as you can get sort of subtropical and mm. we went in, we went into this bar one evening and it was quite quiet when we went in. And then about 10, 15 minutes later, the doors opened. And it was like a scene from a Western film. Yeah. About five or six of the biggest Maori guys you've ever seen in your life came in. They were all at least six, four, six, five. Yeah. They were built like brick shit sizes. They were covered in tattoos and yeah. scars. They had bits of them missing, and and basically what it was, they were they were terrifying looking, absolutely terrifying looking, and mm. you could see these two cops looking. Oh shit, this is not good. Um, yeah. But anyway, we got chatting with them, and they were good as gold in the end. They were good as gold. We had a few beers with them. We, we didn't obviously tell them that these guys were police yeah. officers because they probably would have got their heads kicked in. Um, 
because apparently there's a lot of, there's all sorts of moving of drugs and all sorts of stuff going on up there but they were yeah. all fit they were all fishermen um oh, and they yeah. they went away out into the the pacific to, to mm. you know but that the most terrifying looking blokes ever and i i mm. just think it must be fascinating to to work in these as a police officer mm. to work in these places because that's when your communication skills become yeah. really I'm, really yeah. important isn't it yeah i was just going to say that it, it does hone your your skills even better because you know what it's like in the met you're, you're only a couple of minutes away from someone you you hit that emergency button and and everyone comes running if you do that here, even where I am down here in somewhere like Harvey, if you did that there, you still may be 40 minutes, 30 minutes from people coming to back you up. So yeah. um, you've got to be, you've got to be yeah, on your game when it's talking to people and, and making decisions what you're going to do. Yeah, yeah. So do you find being a sergeant now is a, uh, you know, how do you find, do you enjoy it? Do you find it... Uh, you're able to do as much operational stuff as you did before probably not <laughs> i love it i do love it um i never thought i'd want to be a sergeant i was happy in the uk as a pc and i thought i'd come over and do the same and a few things turn my turn me around maybe a little bit and i thought i'd actually like to kind of um bring on the young in service and probationers on how i think it, it should be done mm -hmm. um, and I, yeah, I really enjoy it. So I, I only moved not far. I was really lucky because I thought I'd have to go back at least back to Perth when I got picked up. But um, I got to Bunbury, which is 40 minutes from Harvey. So not far at all. And we built and live um, pretty much in between. Mm -hmm. So it takes me about 25 minutes to get to work. Um, really enjoy it. I'm running at the moment, I'm running an inquiry team. So I did, um, I've done, I went on shift initially and then I pestered the boss at the time to let me set up a proactive team, mm -hmm. uh, which I did last year, but a few different priorities came in and that got disbanded and I, I took over running the inquiry team. So we do um, a lot of stuff probably that would go to CID in the UK or yeah. um, detective land here back in Perth at least, but yeah. we deal with a lot of, um, a lot of burglary stuff, acquisitive crime, um assaults um domestic violence um on the people so the assault side to that yeah. um but probably our main crux of work is the volume crime stuff so the aggravated burglaries right. um stealing motor vehicles that's our kind of bread and butter it's really good i really enjoy it and in terms of i mean given again i'm sure you maintain contact with people back in the uk and you'll be aware of all of the issues around policing in the uk um you know it's it's all just really really messy at the moment and you've also got this situation where uh large numbers of uh, the, the whole of the criminal justice system is 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 really creaking it's on its knees we've got the legal profession barristers striking every other week uh, my brother is a criminal barrister and i'm actually interviewing him on, for the podcast next oh, week which i which i'm really looking forward to actually because that's going to be fascinating to, yeah. to chat to chat to him you know even though he's my brother, but the talk, other side to talk about all that stuff as well is going to be really interesting. Um, yeah, so they're striking. The whole thing's just a bloody car crash, quite honestly. So, how, if if you were to sort of, I don't know, score all of that stuff in Western Australia marks out of ten, ten being everything's brilliant and it couldn't possibly get any better, and uh, one being oh. it's a shit show. <laughs> 
It's um, a leading or... question, this. <laughs> <laughs> Where Where anyone else still employed? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, just give us a flavour for, um, how, is it working? Does it work reasonably well? You know, it, nothing's ever perfect. Nothing's no. ever and, perfect. And I'm sure everyone will have a different opinion. I personally, I think we still, we still maintain some of that common sense approach. Um, and I know you talk about writing, um, writing jobs off. We can still do that, you know. If right, you've got yeah. Miss Miggins arguing with a neighbour about a bush that's hanging over, we can still yeah. get rid of that without visiting yeah. them ten times and yeah, yeah. all the rest. If, if and if if victims don't engage with us, then we can still um, disengage. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, so that's all here, you know. And I'm interested. I do get interested in now, especially doing what I'm doing at the moment, inquiry stuff. Um, listening to you about sanction detection rates mm -hmm. and how low they are in in the UK because we're sitting. Yeah. At, I think we're sitting around twenty five percent. Really? Uh, yeah. Well, that's what yeah. it used to be like. That's what it used to be. Like. I mean, I know people will say, "Oh, yeah, but you were fiddling the figures because you were reclassifying things as criminal damage when it should have been uh, attempted burglary and all that." But but even so, you'd still get a detection out of it. You know, so uh, whilst I don't agree with some of the sharp practices that were going on back in those days, at least we were still locking people up, um, yeah. char charging them and putting them before the court. Yeah. Um, whereas now, I mean, there's some really, really terrible statistics there recently about the, the low, unbelievable low number of arrests and yeah. all of this kind of stuff. So, so from what you've said, it sounds to me as if you've got that quite a nice balance between yeah, being have. able being held accountable to you know society and to the courts mm. and a strong legal framework whilst at the same time being able to exercise some common sense and discretion sure yeah and, and like you nailed it on the on, on the head there it's being um accountable to society isn't it mm. you know and and my old boss used to put it will be nice to the nice people and treat them Give them the gold service, yeah, and yeah. we'll be nasty to the the, the bad people. Yeah, until and they we'll decide to stop up. being nasty. Yeah, that's it. yeah, we'll lock them up as for whatever we can lock them up for, because yeah. you know that's what the public expects of us. So exactly, yeah, um, and exactly, and that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, um, if you're actually doing what uh, for me as a taxpayer, I don't want the police to be spending. Um, hours and hours and hours running around filling in forms that mean nothing to anyone and you know uh, ticking bureaucratic boxes I want them out in the street actually mm. in meeting the public interacting with the public doing what you've just described helping the nice law-abiding people with what yeah. they you need the police for so yeah no I mean I I envy you from that point of view and long may it continue then in in, yeah. in Australia because uh yeah, I think I do think uh, it'll go full. No, I'm not saying it'll go full. Sorry, I'm not saying because if it went full circle, we'd go back to the Sweeney, wouldn't we? And <laughs> uh, you know, sort of life on Mars. I don't want. I don't yeah. want that. To, I don't want no. that to happen. Well, um, but, mean. but I, I um, do think uh, it's not sustainable at the moment. So, no. And even from here, I mean, we're, I'm not saying we're perfect. We're not certainly. You know, no one's perfect. Um, but we've got a new commissioner in who's been in about a month now. And his big drive is um, to try and remove the police from doing what isn't a police role yeah. and and to get people out on the streets a bit more, whether that's because of technology yeah. and and the like. But um, 
just get out and, and be visible and do policing, be a police officer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I would say if the, if the British police, the analogy I like to think is the British police have got themselves into a situation where if it was two neighbours uh, or somebody living in a, in a neighbourhood, your next door neighbour comes around and asks you if they could possibly just sort of reach up and sort of water the water the um you know the hanging basket one day um and uh, and you say yeah of course i'll do that yeah I'll, I'll, I'll water your hanging basket you fast forward two years and you're cleaning their house you're uh, you've got you're doing their garden and you're wiping their backside every day and you know you think well how did i get here how did i, I only started watering the hanging basket but now uh, i'm a, i'm actually a slave to your every whim and i think until until policing um, grows a pair for want of that's a very uh, sort of male kind of chauvinist kind <laughs> of expression but I'm, it's my podcast and I'll use it if I want um, <laughs> until Brit, Brit, British policing grows a pair and starts turning around to um, statutory and non-statutory partners and saying terribly sorry that's not our job our job yeah. is to keep people safe and yeah. every minute that we spend dealing with your work is mm. a minute that we're not spending doing our work so yeah. yeah sorry you know and i hope that's where we're kind of heading here as well because we have same as the uk we've been caught up with dealing with the mental health crisis and child protection and those kind of services and and which is pulling us away from policing um and certainly we're trialing at the moment and it's been trialed in perth for the last couple of years um doing a joint response to mental health um mm. as one of the initiatives so um, officers going out with a mental health worker and going to those people that are in need and instead mm. of spending four hours at the hospital with them mm. they can be assessed at home in a safe location and yeah. diverted to what they need there yeah. and then and they might spend half an hour an hour with them yeah so. yeah i mean we did we had that in the west midlands as, uh, as a mental health triage car and it was brilliant absolutely brilliant doing exactly what you described so uh, the mental health practitioner would have access to all of the um patient records on the lap yeah. on the laptop and they would know exactly what the crack was with someone in terms of what medication they should be taking who which teams mm. they were linked in with and all of that stuff but it's just not enough it's just not enough yeah. and um yeah anyway listen i'm conscious of the time we've been going for an hour and 20 minutes yeah. john that that was really really fascinating really fascinating i really really enjoyed that that was brilliant and um and i'm genuinely grateful um to you for you know coming on and talking to me um and uh yeah so i wish no, you the very you. i wish you the very best what's uh are you have you finished work for the day today or are you working yes you? yeah I, I have today off so i'm not back till monday so it's good weekend off um Excellent. I think it's going to rain, but there we go. Oh, Such is well. life. We don't get a lot <laughs> of rain, so I can't mind. You can go uh, go surfing, let's go surfing or something and get eaten by a great white shark. No, that's something. Sorry, before we finish, that's something I've never been able to get my head on. Why head around? Why on earth would you go surfing somewhere where you know there are hungry great white sharks who uh, um, are quite happy to tear you to pieces? What's that all about? I can't bring myself to do it, um, but. And I work with people that surf, and you, you obviously people in the community is all doing. They they just put it on the the same lines as well. More likely get hit by a bus than <laughs> than get eaten by a shark. So I think care. if I had to choose, I think I had to choose between it hit by a bus and eaten alive by a great white shark. I'd I'd go for the bus personally. I know, I know. I just <laughs> I can't get my head around it. 
I worry just going in the I mean, we go down, we live right by the sea. We're, we're in a beach um, community and uh, we go down there in the summer, but I, I can't go out to eat. <laughs> no definitely not right. listen, my, listen my friend thanks ever so much for coming on I really enjoyed uh, it and uh, yeah, I wish you well over here and we'll go for a beer yeah I'd love I'd love that I'd love yeah, that great. excellent yeah I'll add it to the list of people I've promised to go for a beer with yeah I, know. <laughs> I spend the rest of my life as a chronic alcoholic you know <laughs> alright mate you take care alright All thanks Ian Bye 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 bye. See ya. Bye. Once we had a policeman, he was often in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his beat. But now we never see him, it really makes us frown. No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town. Oh. <laughs>